Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by a nice big set of colleagues. We have Lola Navarro in London, we have John Evans in Brazil, and we have John Fiorillo in Seattle. Hello, gang. Hello. So, uh, this was an insane... Insane news week. I guess it's the uh, the run up to Brussels, so a lot of news is being released. A lot of people are trying to get things out so they can make make a big show of it. Um, but uh, but let's kick off with the story that that uh, has dominated the news, uh, even though it came late in the week. Um, I'm going to kick it to you, John Fiorillo. Tell us what happened at Costco. Okay, well, uh, Costco has restructured their contract, their supply contract for their Kirkland signature brand uh, Atlantic cold smoked salmon. And that's significant for many reasons, but one of the big reasons is that's a massive contract. Um, Don't know exactly what it's worth, but industry sources put it somewhere between 40 million and as much as maybe $50 million annually. So you can imagine there's always interest in that contract. So since about 2005, I think, Foppen, uh, Netherlands-based Foppen, has owned that contract. They, they were awarded it after some trouble with uh, Marine Harvest, now Maui, back, back in the early 2000s. So um, now the contract has been split, as we understand it, uh, um, in thirds, and Foppen has a third, and Acme, in a U.S.-based Acme, has a third, and uh, Leroy, through its uh, salmon smoker Rotavis, has a third. So, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. But uh, it's it's kind of a big deal. So, what does that mean in terms of uh, in terms of the 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 split of the origins of the of the fish then? We're going to have sure. fish from both Norway and Chile now, right? Which is new. Yeah, first time uh, this product line has had uh, Chilean product in it. So that's, you know, that's significant. I mean, I'd like to think it points to um, the, the great turnaround that Chile is in the middle of right now. Uh, Lola uh, wrote a report about it that we just uh, published. It's an amazing story of um, the the very beginning uh, of the Chilean salmon industry through its tough times and to where it is today. So that's kind of cool. I don't know how much that went into Costco's um, thought process. I actually try, I talked to Costco today, but they would not comment from the story, but that's the thing that would be nice to know, you know, what was Costco thinking as far as why they made this change? Because Foppin has had this for a long, long time. So for some reason, that, that has changed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been strange to me that, that Foppin has held this contract, not because I have any knowledge that Foppin doesn't do a good job, um, but it, it, it's, um, it's odd that all these years Kirkland would be, uh, would be using an overseas supplier, which comes with um, additional cost. Uh, there's plenty of smokers here in the U.S. that could, not plenty, but there's some smokers in the U.S. here that could could have managed that for all these years, and I know they vied for that contract a lot. Um, but but Costco must have been very very happy, and I I think that 
Um, I think it's really, really difficult to meet Costco's specifications, and that's one challenge. Is I think you, it it's like with any of these big major retailers, you have to give up a little little piece of your soul to um, if you want to supply them in large volumes, and that means making um, making a lot of um, concessions. You know, so I'm sure Foppen has bent over backwards to do that, but still, um, I imagine Costco looked at it and said wait a minute, this is, if anything happens at Foppen, uh, and there have been some things that have happened at Foppen over the past decade or so, um, just as with any smoked salmon supplier. And I think they're just realizing uh, probably that it's just too risky to just be, have all their eggs in one basket. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uncharacteristic for a retailer of their magnitude to to have, as you said, all the eggs in one basket. I, I, a, a few sources did tell me that in the early days when this contract uh, came about, Costco really was interested in tying the product to a Norwegian identity, which it has for all these years. So, um, I, I mean, it still does because, you know, the farms that Foppen sources from are in Norway. But, um, yeah, so I don't know if if that has less importance to them anymore, it, it, it's, you know, like I say, I, they, they didn't care to answer and that's fine. I respect that. I understand that. Okay. Well, that'll be an interesting uh, development to follow. John Evans, uh, you have been tracking the, uh, the anchovy quota in Peru that was just announced, uh, the first season. Um, and it was set at, I believe 2.1 million metric tons, which was, far below where it was last year. Um, so what were sort of the first reactions to the quota and kind of where we might see uh, prices um, going? Yes, we, it broke after we, I think, we recorded the, uh, the previous podcast on uh, Friday afternoon. It certainly came later on Friday afternoon last week because we were coming into this week, I suppose you might say, in the news cycle. And uh, 36% quota cut, as you mentioned, and speaking to Rockbo Bank, as we did uh, firstly, they said that um, price uh, increases would be inevitable. And um, 36%, well, they didn't say, think it was going to be 36%, but we have done a little bit of research in between times, and we found out that um, at the end of 2017, uh, for example, the second season prices rose 22%. In three months, after a 26% quota cut, so the following season, the first of 2018, prices dipped um, briefly on an 18% reduction and um, before flatlining at around $1,600. And then uh, for the second season of 2018, we had a 40% uh, increase in quota and prices only slipped 5%. So it, it is um, quite hard to predict, even though... Um, even though uh, you know pr uh, quotas or, or price, quotas can uh, change uh, quite dramatically, and, and um, Peru, of course, accounts for forty to fifty percent of trade material, so it can be more than the swing uh, producer of um, anchovy in, in the market. So, uh, but that, going back to your question about um, how much uh, price is going to jump, when we did further research. Uh, uh, and reporting uh, a little bit later in the week, we we had to find that fish meal prices jumped 10% uh, already ahead of the anchovy quota cut, as uh, speculation in the market uh, 
uh, drove this. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense that uh, the word might trickle out a bit. So when, when um, just in your discussions with, with EFO, for example, when, when do you typically, when will we typically see this cycle through uh, and, and, uh, and see uh, the, pres- the prices actually be pressured up in the market? Do they have any, any feelings on that? Yeah, it wasn't just them. It was also uh, Patrick Charlton uh, um, at Alltech. I mean, he he was speaking about it, and he was saying that you know we, we don't expect it to filter through, particularly into the uh, fish oil um, market for you know two to three months afterwards. Um, you know, with the uh, the uh, the yields need, needing to be evaluated. But generally speaking, when we looked at the the graphs over the uh, over, over recent times, it was about three months to, to kick in. Yeah, and, and that's going to be really uh, interesting because, um, you know, in, in speaking about altern- alternative feed agree- uh, ingredients, which we have several times, uh, well, it's been a really hot topic, but here on the podcast, too, we've talked about it. There is a price point where it starts becoming much more interesting, correct, John? There's sort of a, a price level where suddenly feed alternatives can kind of get a big boost because um, it makes uh, financial sense to start um, to use use those uh, alternative ingredients more. That's right. And that's that's a, that's a trend that we highlighted in our feed report uh, last year. And that, that that's certainly became clear um, from a, a number of people we, we spoke to in that. One, one thing that I found was interesting also, Drew, that um, almost everybody I spoke to pointed to uh, how well managed the um, you know the anchovy stock and the anchovy uh, uh, yeah the anchovy um, raw materials are managed by the uh, by the Peruvian authorities and they, they never let the uh, um, the the, um, the amount to be harvested go above thirty percent of the biomass so uh, that keeps it, keeps it in check. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, when you do see these cuts, I think it, it's, you can be of two minds when you look at it, and you can say, oh my God, you know, this stock must be in trouble. But I, I think a better way to look at it is actually what you just said, which is these, the biomass is is just huge for anchovies. And, you know, really to reduce the quotas in the way that they do show, um, uh, I think, a lot of foresight about um, being conservative with the management there. So, and they've got a lot of other factors that play into it. El Nino obviously continues to play a massive role in in what uh, in uh, what kind of um, biomass they're going to end up with, harvestable biomass. So, um, yeah, it's it's a highly fluctuating fishery, but um, yeah, I think this was a pretty pretty steep cut. Yeah, and, it, and they and, you know they say that it's uh, difficult to. Um, predict more than three months ahead so they're not in t- so there's no reason at the moment why the, why the whole quota shouldn't be landed but there's um you know because of this three month uh, period when it's difficult to look beyond it, it's it's not um entirely uh signed or sealed yeah and lola we've had the you know there's been a uh, several times over the past uh seasons where there's been um you know there's been problems actually harvesting the quota yeah Depends very much on the weather conditions and also uh, produce uh, with uh, some of the well with uh, input from IMARPE, the Instituto, the Institute of the Sea of Peru. Normally places mini bands um, along the coast if the conditions are not good. 
and and also you've got the of course the of course anchovy stocks are migratory uh, stocks and they they move along the coast and sometimes it's just diff difficult for them to catch the last one last time they had a it was last year they had a very very good season i think they caught a 98% of the quota but this year they were saying that uh, it was it's it's hard to predict and that there are going to be a lot of minivans of the ones I was talking about just because of the El Nino uh, phenomenon. So yeah, it's not it's not always clear. Sometimes the fact that they give a large quota doesn't mean that they are gonna land uh, a lot of fish. And in the same way when they, sometimes they give a lower quota but they land it all. So it's not always um, very clear what's going to happen. And yep. That's happened in the past. Yeah, by the time it actually gets to the market, it can mean a lot, a lot uh, different than what the quota indicate. Moving on to shrimp, uh, another topic we want to hit on. And Lola, just sticking with you, uh, you just did uh, a really good roundup on where where the market sits right now, and you posed the question, and some of the sources raised uh, raised this idea of um, whether or not Vaname prices had hit bottom yet and what was the sort of general feeling because i know producers would love to see the prices go up but um buyers are um really enjoying the low prices yes uh well the general the general feeling everywhere is that prices are at the lowest well they hit a uh, <clears throat> rock bottom last year um at yeah around this time i think and they've stayed very low since uh, in some countries, they are saying that uh, they cannot go any lower. Uh, some producers are losing money; they they cannot <clears throat> they cannot reach uh, production production costs with the prices. But like you're saying, the buyers enjoy the buyers enjoy the low prices. And at the same time, I heard that the consumers are not seeing these low prices reflected. So the problem is that. Um, I guess the market is not balanced at the moment. There are people who are actually producing the product or the or <clears throat> yeah the product and not making money, and then their clients are actually making big margins, I believe. And the fact that uh, the consumer doesn't see this this uh, shift in prices means that the demand doesn't necessarily increase, mm. and and so that way it seems like there is no there is no clear end to this. And also the fact that the Vaname uh, producing picture is so fragmented and there are so many different producers producers around the world and there is so little communication means that there is no organized planning for stocking or for harvesting. And so the problem as well is that they don't have any, there is very little transparency. They keep stocking and then because the Vaname shrimp, uh, the Vaname production cycle is about three months. Three months, I think. Uh, by the time they they realize they've stocked too much, there is there is already an oversupply of shrimp in the market. So there, it's it's really difficult to it's really difficult to stop it because yeah, once you once you start stocking and there is no there is no diseases anywhere, you you just get um you just get this oversupply everywhere and. And well, I was hearing that in China, for example, where, which is the biggest uh, market for Ecuadorian shrimp, there is no oversupply of product, but nonetheless, there is there are very low prices because China is now importing 
uh, more shrimp directly, meaning that, um, well, this is a good thing because uh, then the, the illegal imports through Vietnam are kind of uh, falling drastically. But um, the downside of it is that uh, there are fewer Chinese importers uh, so that then there is little room for negotiation when you when you export uh, shrimp to China. So at the end of the day, they're also seeing, the Ecuadorian shrimp farmers are also seeing um, low prices uh, in China. And and well, it just seems to be a trend that doesn't end. I I had these conversations with I've been talking to producers everywhere for a year now about these low prices and it just seems to be the same again and again and again and it only varies just very seasonal like sometimes before Christmas or before uh, summer but that's all and and yeah like I was saying lack of transparency leads to lack of planning and then um, and then you see this situation where the prices are low and and the, the market is going to have to readjust at some point. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that if if the shrimp sector had more transparency, as you said, and had more planning and more discipline, I think we would finally see that sector start to consolidate. We know investors are really, really interested in it. We know that it's a it's a highly popular species. Uh, we know that the farming techniques are getting better and better. Feed is getting better and better. So there's a lot of things to to recommend. Uh, shrimp farming is an investment, but until they can figure out uh, some of these uh, these market impulses and and figure out how to make the market more transparent, um, I think it's going to be very hard for um, for us to see um, the kinds of consolidation we've seen in other sectors. Yeah, you're right. We've got we've uh, published before some some of the big investments happening lately. We saw that Campasol is increasing their production. They acquired a shrimp farmer in Peru. Uh, I was talking to their CEO and he was telling me that it's a very interesting sector. It's got a, an amazing product. It's very healthy and, and it's it's very versatile. It's easy to sell. And also we saw recently that Mitsui is uh, acquiring a stake in one of the, well, in Ecuador's largest shrimp producers. So there is interest. And mm-hmm. it's it's a sector that it's a sector that's got a lot of potential, but the lack of organization is what keeps uh, making it not be profitable, I, I guess, or as profitable as it should be. Yeah, yeah. Another one to mention there too, um, Lola, is uh, Nisui investing in uh, in sea farms down in Australia as well, right. which is mm-hmm. um, another really interesting sign that people do believe in shrimp and they do want to put money in it, but um, yeah, still a lot of work to be done to get the sector in order. So, um, great. Well, we are uh, just days away from the Brussels Seafood Show. And if any of our listeners don't know what the Brussels Seafood Show is, then I have to wonder why you're listening to this podcast. But that's okay. We'll explain it. It is the uh, largest seafood show uh, in the the world. And it's, uh, it's the one that uh, everybody marks on their calendars. You just kind of have to be there. Uh, so we will be there, of course. Lola and I will be there, along with Rachel Mutter. Um, and I want to hear from everybody just in round robin what you think some of the uh, some of the big topics are going to be at Brussels this year. John, what's everybody going to be talking about uh, for Fiorillo here in Seattle? 
not sure, but I would think the alleged price fixing of uh, the Norwegian salmon farming cartel would uh, be on people's minds. So I'm just going to throw that out as my answer because I'm not going to be at the show, unfortunately. That's probably a good guess. Uh, John Evans, do you have any uh, any predictions on what's going to dominate conversation? Well, I don't think uh, the, the subject of Brexit, whichever side of the fence you happen to be on, will be too far away from everybody's lips, particularly in the uh, in the capital of the uh, you might say the capital of the European Union, Brussels. Um, so yes, and and from a Brazilian point of view, although it, it, it'll um, be only probably on the sidelines, it'll be whether. Um, the um, Brazilian uh, seafood processing uh, plants can get back into uh, action to export to uh, the European Union because they've been out of commission uh, for exports to the European Union um, because of uh, uh, concern about standards here for um, nigh on 18 months now, for 16, 16 months I think it is now. So yes, uh, there'll be certainly uh, meetings going on there on the sidelines. Lola, you have any predictions for what you think we might dig up or what you think people will be talking about at the show? Yes, like, well, you know, I cover the Chilean salmon sector and I, and I know that many, many, many of the Chilean salmon executives are going to be there. And, well, I think the consolidation talks are far from over at this point. The last move was Bloomer last uh, week also announcing that uh, a majority stake in the company is up for sale. So this is going to be a great, great um <clears throat> Uh, topic or yeah discussion there and and yeah I don't think these talks are over I think there is going to be more of this coming and and yeah I'm just gonna try to just gonna try to report on it and see what's happening in that market yeah there's going to be loads to dig up there always is uh it's just an, an incredible show of an incredible size and um like I said it's it's something that you just have to be at if you are in the seafood industry. Um, my predictions, uh, I think all of you made very, very wise predictions. Um, I also think that uh, from a whitefish vantage, uh, we have similar, uh, similar trends that are happening with, uh, with pressure on raw material prices. I think the, uh, the noise that the Alaska Pollock producers have made um, about their product and all the new markets they've opened up. I think that pressure is really being felt and really being leveraged with European uh, uh, PBO block buyers. So I think we'll see that. And in addition, I think Russia uh, and their Pollock sector um, is, is playing in that uh, as well and their increase towards value-added products. So it's just been kind of a steady stream of vessel improvements and new markets uh, and uh, and just in general, a greater awareness of, of Pollock as a fish, and that comes down to uh, a lot of work. But I think that that will be uh, that'll be discussed, um, and uh, that will be debated, and there'll be some um, probably some tense negotiations between the both sides to get to the right uh, prices. So. Um, and beyond that, uh, you can make sure and catch everything we're going to do. We will have a, a Brussels blog going, and we'll have stories we'll be producing from the show. Uh, we also have uh, our leadership event on Wednesday, and that's going to be headlined by uh, an Alibaba executive, so we're really excited about that. We'll announce our person of the year uh, at that event, so you'll be seeing news on that. Uh, and we'll also be rolling out a couple great features. We'll have our CEO pay ranking and we'll also release our seafood executive survey results, uh, which we uh, are really excited. We got 300 
um, upper management um, uh, um, executives giving input on how they see the sector and how they see it um, how they see it developing over the next uh, year, and some really surprising and uh, and interesting results from there. So a lot of stuff to bring to you. Don't forget if you want to keep up with the most important seafood news. The best way to do that is to visit us on interfish.com, sign up for one of our newsletters. You can also find us on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you can drop us a line at any time if you have tips, ideas, feedback. Just let us know, editorial at intrafish.com. We'll be back next week. <laughs>